Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, this is a great day. What a, what a beautiful day to be able to worship, even though it's rainy out there. Uh, we get to be in here in a comfortable place and open up God's Word together. Let me tell you about something that makes this morning exciting. A couple of things. First of all, at our, at our 1030 service after this one, we get to do some child dedications. We love doing that here at Calvary because it just shows the next generation of people who are going to grow up and, and by God's grace, worship the Lord, walk with Him, and we get to encourage those parents. We get to let them know that we are with them as they raise their families. So that'll be a really cool thing that we'll get to do at the next service. Let me say what Jake already has said. Happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers who are out there. It's so appropriate to celebrate the sacrifices that you have made as you have given your lives to help your own children. At the same time, I know Mother's Day can be a painful day for some women as well. And if that's you this morning for various reasons, if this day stirs up emotions that are really hard, we just pray that God's grace would meet you in that place as well. It's appropriate, though, for us to show gratitude towards those who have invested into our lives. It's appropriate for us to show gratitude towards someone who has provided for us, towards someone who has cared for us. But gratitude is not always the first impulse of our hearts. This is not a Mother's Day sermon, just to be clear. But gratitude is a topic that's appropriate on this day, but it's appropriate every day. Back in Babylon long ago, there was a king who went up on the roof of his palace. And as he looked out and saw all of the wonders of his city, he said this, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Gratitude is not always the first impulse. Sometimes we want to celebrate our own greatness instead. Gratitude is outward facing. Gratitude acknowledges that someone else has helped us along the way. Gratitude is an acknowledgement that All that we have has been given to us by someone else. But gratitude is not always what our heart turns to immediately. The danger is that if we are not grateful, then our faith can be damaged. Our faith can be obstructed if we don't have grateful hearts. God's word says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We want to be people who are humble Because people who are humble are people who are grateful. That's what we want to go after. If you're joining us for the first time, we're in this series called Winsome. And what we mean by winsome is that we want to live lives that are attractive, that have a certain draw to them and appeal to them so that others would want to know about our God and follow him. That's what we mean by winsome. And we've seen over these weeks how Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, have lived lives in a very difficult place in Babylon are attractive, that have a certain appeal. We will see some of that this morning. The main focus, though, is on this king who lacks gratitude. So we're going to turn to Daniel chapter 4 this morning. I invite you to turn there with me. Some of the verses will be up here on the screen. Some will not. We're going to start off, though, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 4. And here's what it says. As Nebuchadnezzar, the same man who spoke those words is looking back on how he got to that point. This is 12 months prior to that. 
And he's going to explain his story to us so we can learn from him about what it means to be grateful. Here's what he says. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed. The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. If everything sounds familiar to you, it should here. This is the second dream that Nebuchadnezzar has had and the second time where the wise men, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and Daniel have been brought in before Nebuchadnezzar. Back in chapter 2, the scenario was a little different, though. Nebuchadnezzar required these wise men to tell him not only the interpretation of his dream, but what his dream was in the first place. It's possible that was a test. It's possible that he had even forgotten the major details of his own dream. But either way, it's different now, so that Nebuchadnezzar is willing to share what happened, but he still requires an interpretation from them. Nebuchadnezzar says here that he was prospering and at ease. This is a king who has a lot going for him. He's at the top of his game, and that prosperity and ease is something that he gets to enjoy, at least during the daytime. At night, the vision and the dream that nags him is his biggest problem that he has going on. So let's look at what that dream entailed. We pick back up in verse 10. It says, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. A tree is a common image in the ancient world, both inside of the Bible and outside of the Bible. It represents kings and kingdoms. And as we see here, this is the main feature of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This tree that's great, it's tall, it connects heaven to earth. It's beautiful in terms of the leaves that it produces. And its fruit is abundant and all creatures are fed by it. This is a life-giving, flourishing tree. And it's just a picture of how Nebuchadnezzar has all that he wants. Nebuchadnezzar is enjoying a flourishing life himself. It's a life of abundance, and it's a life that has this great span so that from all the world, it seems like you can see the greatness of who he is and what his kingdom is. But I said just a minute ago that Daniel was, or Nebuchadnezzar rather, is afraid of this dream. So we have to keep reading to see that because for a guy who is crushing it, during the daytime, the nighttime 
poses a certain threat to him. So he goes on and he explains in verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said this, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the ground bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Okay, I know that's a lot of text, but what's going on here is a holy one, a messenger from God, an angelic being is coming down to this tree and he's commanding, issuing a decree that it be chopped down. The beautiful, strong branches be chopped off down to the ground, the fruit scattering across the surface of the ground. And then, as though it's an animal, the stump is to be bound with metal bands. And then we see this strangeness that can only be in a dream the tree morphs into a beast, morphs into an animal. And that animal then eats the grass of the field. It's this picture of this mighty tree being reduced down to nothing. That's the picture that's going on here in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And we can understand why he might be bothered by this. But King Nebuchadnezzar is in a tough spot here. Because his life is, as he's already mentioned, one of prosperity and ease. This is a man who has it all. But this dream is making him wonder if there's something else going on in his life. Daniel is in a tough spot here too. Because Daniel, as he stands before the volatile king, the one who is often unstable emotionally and with his impulsive actions, Daniel has to tell the king the truth of what's going on in this dream. Some commentators have speculated that this actually isn't that difficult of a vision to be able to understand and explain. It could be the case that what's really going on with Nebuchadnezzar's wise men, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, is that they just lack the courage to tell the king what's obvious. Daniel, though, is in this place of being asked for being counted on, Nebuchadnezzar is confident in his ability to tell him what the dream means. And here we see a case of how Daniel is winsome once again. So we keep reading. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. What we see here in Daniel 
is an example of someone who has to express the truth, but at the same time is completely concerned whether Nebuchadnezzar will actually hear it and receive it. This isn't Daniel shaking his fist at the king and saying, you're about to get what you had coming. But this is Daniel saying, may it not even be for you. May it be for your enemies. Daniel genuinely cares about this king who had come in to his homeland and carried him, his companions, the other families, and all of the people of Judah off into Babylon. And Daniel genuinely cares for this man's well-being. That is an example of winsome living, where we're not fighting against people who have different perspectives than we do, but we genuinely want what's best for them as we speak an uncompromising truth to them. This is what Daniel is doing, and as he does it, he states what's obvious. If we skip ahead to verse 22, he explains to the king, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. You are that tree. And not only that, if we keep skipping down to verse 24 and 25, he says, this is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed to you from the time that you know that heaven rules. That's a lot of text. That's a lot of text. But you see what's happening here across these 26 verses. This first 26 verses of the chapter contain the whole vision and Daniel's interpretation. And we see right here that Nebuchadnezzar, in spite of his prosperity, in spite of his ease, is actually in a position of danger. It's one thing when we face dangers that we are aware of, but the most dangerous dangers are those that we're not aware of. Those are the ones we have to really watch out for. There are a lot of known dangers in our world, aren't there? I came across this just recently. There's a road in Bolivia. It's now been replaced, but up until recently, it was known as just by the simple nickname, Death Road. It's about 10 feet wide. It's gravel. It has no guardrails, and it snakes high in the mountains of Bolivia. There are no traffic laws, so when you get into a situation like this, there's no set procedure for how you're supposed to go forward. It's littered on the side with crosses because on average of two to 300 people every year lost their lives down the two to 3,000 foot drop off off of the sharp edge. On top of all of that, the rains and the fog would just obscure the view. So it's like you're walking on this dangerous tightrope called a road. It's one thing when you're in a situation like that and you can clearly see, okay, I must be careful here. But it's another thing when you're in Nebuchadnezzar's position and everything around you is telling you how awesome your life is, except for this nagging vision in the night. And what is the danger that Nebuchadnezzar's in? The danger that he faces is the danger of having all that you want. 
Because when you have all that you want, you may not want what you need. Having all that you desire means that you may not actually desire the thing that you need the most. And what does he need? It's a change of perspective about his life. What Nebuchadnezzar needs is a change of perspective about the world and how it truly operates. What he needs most is a change of perspective about God. We've read it twice. Maybe you've caught it already. But this verse is the key. It's repeated three times in this passage, and we've seen it a couple times now. That Nebuchadnezzar would know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. This is the perspective shift that Nebuchadnezzar needs to have in order to understand how his position has come to be, how his empire has come to be, and how he has come to enjoy such prosperity and such ease in his life. But this is a difficult message for someone who is so successful. The more successful we are, don't we want to believe that we've gotten there because of our own efforts, our own abilities? Dr. Alan Noble is an author and professor, and he writes about this, and he writes about the pressure of our society for our children in a society where we seem to think that it's our own ability that gets us where we want to be. And he says this, because we have taught our children that we live in a meritocracy, meritocracy being you get what you have earned based on your merit, we live in a meritocracy where the winners are responsible for their success and the losers are responsible for their failure, all of life becomes part of the game. At every stage, our children are either improving and developing, working toward an impressive college application and resume, or they are falling behind. But it's not just our kids who are feeling this pressure. All of our society has this Darwinistic idea about it when we lose track of the fact that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. If we take God out of the equation, then it's up to us to achieve our way. It's survival of the fittest. The strongest are the ones who climb to the top. Nebuchadnezzar is being challenged to reconsider by those words that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That is the perspective shift that he needs. And we see that this is one of the major problems of pride. That pride warps our perception of what's really happening in our lives. Pride distorts it so that we don't see the fact that God is sovereign and that because God is sovereign, we should live with humility. But instead, we take credit for things that we ought not to take credit for. Daniel continues on then, and he just wraps all of this up and offers this advice in verse 27 to the king. And he says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Break off your sins. Repent. Pursue righteousness. Pursue mercy. 
Right? Jake just talked about this in the announcements. And if you were here last week, you saw during the 6-8 project how we celebrated these different opportunities of ministry, of showing mercy to people. Because why? We have been shown such great mercy by God. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to do justice, to love mercy or kindness, and to walk humbly with God. Those same instructions for God's people are echoed here in just a different form. But again, it's righteousness. It's mercy towards the oppressed. There's always a collateral damage with pride. We see here that while Nebuchadnezzar is prospering and while his life is at ease, not everyone is enjoying the benefit of his kingdom. Some are oppressed. Some are in great need. But as Nebuchadnezzar is so concerned about his own greatness, he may not even notice the cries of those around him, of the oppressed, those who need mercy. Can that happen to us? Can we also get so wrapped up in our own success and in our own achievement that we might also forget to look at those around us who need mercy? Of course it can. Of course it can. But this is Nebuchadnezzar's opportunity. This is his moment to change course, to change direction. But will he take it? This puts us back where we started. Twelve months later, Nebuchadnezzar goes up on the roof of his palace. And he looks out at the, the wonders of Babylon, the wonders of the city, and says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Scholars tell us that when he would have looked out from the roof of his palace, he would have seen some pretty spectacular things. Here's a description that one Old Testament scholar named John Goldengay has said. He said, the palaces from which Nebuchadnezzar surveyed Babylon had large courts, reception rooms, throne room, residences, and the famous Hanging gardens, it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's a vaulted terraced structure with an elaborate water supply for its trees and plants. When he looked out, he would have seen in the distance the city's 27-kilometer outer double wall, which he had built. His palace stood just inside that double wall, which was punctuated by eight gates and encircled an area with the Euphrates River running through it. He also had this massive gate called the Ishtar Gate, which at one time was considered another one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a beautiful city. So when we think of Nebuchadnezzar looking out from the top of the palace roof, it's not like he's just delusional about how impressive the city looks. There was a lot to be impressed by. But Nebuchadnezzar in his pride has given himself all the credit for all of it. And we should not miss the fact that this is 12 months later. This is God's mercy on display in Nebuchadnezzar's life. It's God's mercy to be so patient, to give the king so much time to be able to turn around, to break off his sins, to show justice and mercy. But for somebody who's so overcome with pride, who enjoys such prosperity, such ease, there's no amount of time that can be enough time to turn around a prideful heart like that. 
So here's what happens. It says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know, strike three, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. The perspective of the palace was one of Nebuchadnezzar just seeing his greatness reflected back to him. But God in his mercy would give Nebuchadnezzar a different perspective. He gave him a perspective of the dirt. As Nebuchadnezzar looked out at the wonders that he had built, he had missed the fact that the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky are cared for and provided for by the hand of someone else. He learned firsthand as he looked down at the dirt that the grass of the field somehow grows up out of the ground and that the animals enjoy the dew of heaven to cool their bodies. And meanwhile, that same dew of heaven makes the grass grow so the animals can have food to eat. It's two different perspectives on the world. Nebuchadnezzar needed to get out of the palace onto the field so he could understand that it's God's hand that makes the world go round, not his own. And as he saw that, Nebuchadnezzar has gone from this process of of looking out from up on high at the city to being made to look down at the dirt, and now he's about to look somewhere else. Let's keep reading. It says, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. So he's gone from looking out on the city to looking down at the dirt and understanding that it's actually God's hand that provides. And now he's looking up to the heavens, looking up to God finally and acknowledging the greatness of this God. God is able to humble those who glorify themselves. But as we just read from Nebuchadnezzar, once he looks up, God is also able to restore those who glorify him. God is able to humble those who glorify themselves and restore those who glorify him. We skipped over the first few verses of this chapter Because this chapter is sandwiched between these two accounts where Nebuchadnezzar is flashing back to this episode that he wants to share. But there's similarities in the way the chapter begins and ends. Because it ends and begins with praise. Nebuchadnezzar has gone through this transformational process, this humbling from God. And the chapter begins this way, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. 
His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar could not be more right about the endurance of God's kingdom. And I wonder if he wondered about the endurance of his own kingdom. If we traveled to Babylon today, this is what we would see. We would see the ruins of Babylon that are now just reduced to rubble. This once wonderful, majestic kingdom is now a pile of rocks as all earthly kingdoms are destined for. But there is an enduring kingdom. It's God's kingdom. And that is what Nebuchadnezzar is now able to realize and to see and to acknowledge And then if we go back to the end of the chapter, he expands on these words and he continues in just saying, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is a God who rules heaven, who rules earth, who rules everywhere in between. And the God who is the one who sustains and creates all of life. He is the one who is worthy of praise. He is the one who is worthy of us acknowledging. He is the one to whom we should be grateful. We don't have to learn the hard way. We don't have to go through all of this process of humbling that Nebuchadnezzar had to go through you and I can actually choose to worship the Lord and understand who he is right now. We can celebrate these words that the king learned himself through great difficulty. And we can, we can sing them along and celebrate them along with Nebuchadnezzar. We too can humble ourselves. I got a letter this week from a compassion child who I don't think he knows that I'm a preacher. I know that he knows I wasn't preaching today, and I don't, I don't think there's any possibility he knew that I was preaching on Daniel 4. But listen to his words. If you're not familiar with Compassion, Compassion International is an organization that cares for children around the world who are in poverty. Okay, This is what he wrote. He says, I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How are you and your family doing? I am grateful to God that my family and I are doing well, and we celebrated the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you that it is the rainy season here. I guess it is here too. And the farmers are harvesting, and and some of them are cultivating their crops. I am grateful to God that he is fighting for me and protecting me. He is helping me with an aluminum skill that I'm learning. My parents are doing well, and I'm doing well, and my church family as well, as at the center. Society is benefiting from me, and I'm grateful to God for the chance of being here in church. It's a good thing to be useful to the society surrounding you. I continue to pray that God will help me and give me knowledge so that I will be able to know many things and be able to build my nation. My family and I are grateful to you and your family. Thank you so much for your support. I pray that God will open doors of blessing in your life. I asked you to read from the book of Romans 13, verses 1 through 4. Okay, did you notice the number of times he said he was grateful? He's grateful. He's grateful. He's grateful. He's grateful. He's grateful. This child who has so little. But then this part at the end just blows me away. 
Romans 13, verses 1 through 4, includes the verse that says, there is no authority except that which is established by God. God is the one who establishes the kingdoms of this world, the kings of this world, and he is the one who has given us our position in this world. I pray that we would all have the humility to recognize his role in bringing about whatever level of prosperity and ease we have and the strength to make it through whatever trials that we face so that we too would worship this God who is worthy of all praise. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for the grace of offering us this lesson to be able to learn from another man who had so much. God, you have given us so much. I pray that we would, we would see the, the danger of falling into the trap of pride. God, I pray that if we find in ourselves this morning we find in ourselves any sense of pride that, that Lord, we would, we would just confess that to you. We would turn from that. And God, we just ask that we would have a renewed sense of your wonder, of your majesty. The fact that you are the one who establishes the kingdoms of this earth. And Lord, the fact that you are the one who sustains our very lives. We give you praise, God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.